is filled with paradox to highlight just how surprised we ought to be when Zechariah flunks the in-person theology exam that Gabriel gives him. But we can, and we should, be much more gracious to the old priest. As we said, and we prefaced our Old Testament reading for this morning, God's people had not heard from him for 400 years. They were back in the promised land, having been scattered to the four winds uh, through the uh, when, when God came and punished them for their disobedience. They'd been living in exile. They're back. But they're living under Roman occupation. And so our Old Testament reading for this morning was the last word from God that his people had received. I think we then can understand how it is and why Zechariah would pull a Marvin Gaye and ask, what's going on here? Now, in the bulletin on page five and on the screen in front of you, you see something called the big idea. The big idea in one sentence is hopefully what the sermon is about. And so our big idea this morning is this. Luke uses paradox to highlight God's covenant faithfulness. Luke uses paradox to highlight God's covenant faithfulness. Now, that presumes, of course, that we know what the word paradox means. So, according to the Oxford American English Dictionary, paradox has two definitions. Here's the first one. A paradox is a person, situation, or action having seemingly contradictory qualities or phases. Here's the second definition of paradox. Is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet is true. Now we're going to see both of those uses of paradox as we make our way through Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. And so here's the first paradox The first paradox is that the great is not so great after all. Now, Luke has told us in the first four verses that he's making a careful account, that he's considered the reports from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And he's going to give Theophilus then a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. He's going to give him an orderly account. And so Luke wants us to understand that he's not making this up. This is not just some sort of mythical story that he heard long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Rather, he wants us to understand that it happened in a real place in real time. And so he begins by setting the story in the days of Herod. Now, Herod, the Herod that he's speaking of, was known as Herod the Great. He came to power in Palestine in 37 B.C., when, with the help of two Roman legions, he betrayed the Jewish people and saw them defeated. It's uh, many of Jews still, when they celebrate Passover, or excuse me, um, when they celebrate Hanukkah, some of the days of Hanukkah have to do with the battle, the battle of the Maccabees that led to Herod coming into power. Not only did Herod betray the entire nation, but he also murdered his wife, his two brothers-in-law, and his wife's mom. This is more than just, "Ah, I don't really like my mother-in-law. Herod is an evil, wicked man. 
In fact, uh, he was so uh, he was he was such a narcissist that here's what he commanded uh, when he knew he was on his deathbed. He told the Roman legions who were at his disposal uh, that he wanted uh, on the day he died, he wanted all the prominent families in Israel to be gathered into this arena called the Hippodrome. And when they knew that he had died, he wanted all those people put to death because he wanted there to be great mourning in Israel on the day that he died. And he knew when he died, there would be dancing in the streets. And so let's kill off the prominent families so that there will be mourning. And they can say, on the day in which Herod the Great died, all of Israel mourned. This is the man who is responsible for the murder of all the boys under two years of age that Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 2. In other words, when Luke tells us, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, he wants us to understand that this is a dark and evil time. He wants us to understand that this would have been a point in time, a point in their history, in which God's people would have been asking a very pressing question. Namely, God, where are you? What are you doing? Are you doing anything? Do you even care? Is the lie that the nations used to tell us, namely that our gods are greater than your God, is that actually true? God, where are you in all of this? Do you not understand what it is that's going on? Or worse, do you not care? Where is God? One of the lessons that Luke is going to teach us in these first two chapters is that God is rarely in positions of great earthly power. And the reason God is rarely in positions of great earthly power is God doesn't need the rich and the powerful. God doesn't need the prominent. God doesn't need the affluent to bring about his will. He can do it on his own. Thank you very much. It's a reminder to us then as well that our hope is not in human rulers. Our hope is not in the political process. Our hope is in the work of the triune God. See, the question we could be concerned with this morning, or that we should be concerned with this morning, is not what is the government up to? What are influencers up to? We should probably care about what Trev Alberts is up to this morning and who he's talking to. But really what we should care about and the question we should be asking is this, what is God doing in his world? See, Herod only thinks he's great. It's God who really and truly is. The one who thinks he's great is not really so great after all. Luke wants to, us to understand what is significant. <coughs> and what is significant and what is important in terms of God's work in the world is not the king of Judea, but an elderly couple. 
a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, who has a wife from the daughters of Aaron, whose name is Elizabeth. In other words, you have a pastor's son who is married to a pastor's daughter. That brings us then to the second paradox. The second paradox that Luke gives us is this. We're told in verse 6 that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, friends, let's just admit we would not expect verse 7 to start with the conjunction but. We would expect that there's a conjunction there for him to simply say and. Or to just say they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. But by using that conjunction, Luke is drawing our attention to something important. You see, in ancient Israel, it was thought that the having of children was a sign of God's favor. And not just children, but the having of sons in particular was an indication of God's great favor and God's blessing upon a couple. And so barrenness was viewed as a sign of God's judgment. And so for Luke to say that they are righteous, that they are walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, and then to follow it up by saying, oh yeah, but by the way, they have no children because barrenness is a factor in their marriage. Those those two things do not go together. And it's a good reminder for us. We cannot judge people's righteousness by their outward appearance. Only God knows people's hearts. Only God understands what's going on in someone's heart. In fact, uh, the frightening thing the Bible tells us is that we don't even know our own hearts. Only God does. So if I don't know my own heart, what in the world makes me think I can judge the condition of yours? What in the world would make me think that I could understand what's happening in your soul and in your heart? And so even though we know that we can't judge, or at least we know we shouldn't judge by these outward appearances, we still do it, don't we? We look at someone's life and we draw certain conclusions. We make certain assumptions. We come to particular deductions. And we do it sometimes in the, under the guise of, well, I, I want to I know how to pray for them. We forget that the entire book of Job leads us to understand that, no, you don't always understand what the Lord is up to. And you don't particularly know what God is doing in the lives of his people. The very first church I pastored full time, uh, we, we went, we left Kentucky and moved uh, to Texas. We lived 17 hours away from one side of the family, 12 hours away from the other side. I followed the founding pastor who'd been there for 10 years, and it was the longest 15 months of our entire lives. Uh, if Gabrielle had not been born in Texas, it was such a difficult experience that I think Amy and I could both convince ourselves that we had never, ever been there 
Like it's one of those things we just kind of want to forget. And one of the most vivid memories that I have, one of the most vivid occurrences that happened to us, actually happened on Christmas Eve. I get a phone call as I'm getting dressed for the Christmas Eve service. It's from uh, the father of a family within our church. And this particular family, they were like the poster family for all the right things that Christians were supposed to do. They had six kids, three boys and three girls. They all had blonde hair and blue eyes. They were all particularly cute. And they homeschooled them, so you know they were really serious about being Christians. Uh, the girls never wore pants. All the women in the family wore dresses. Uh, they were pictures of modesty. Uh, they had a family farm, so they were into sustainable farming. They had this business where they would do honey, and everybody was involved. It was a whole family thing. And so everything from, the out, from outward appearances, everything you looked at would have told you, this is a model Christian family. And then I get a phone call on Christmas Eve letting me know that everything everybody thought about that particular family was a complete lie. Now, they were homeschooling their children and they had six kids and all of that was certainly true. But it was a troubled marriage. They were a troubled family. They had troubled children. And it got to the point, it was so bad and it was a smaller community and so uh, we felt like in talking to the deacons, we didn't have, I was, I was a Baptist and we didn't have elders, we just had deacons. And talking to the deacons, we said, hey, we feel like we probably need to sit down with the congregation and just say, we, we just want to let you know, we're not going to divulge any kind of confidences, but just know like things aren't good. And so please pray for them and know that we're dealing with all of this. And please like try not to take sides in what's going on because it was, it got really ugly between the mom and the dad really fast. And the thing that we heard time and time again from people within the church was, Pastor, I just can't believe it. I can't believe that those things are true of that particular family. We judge by outward appearances. We know that the Bible tells us that only God knows the heart. And so in presenting uh, the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth in this way. Luke is reminding us of something that the Bible tells us from beginning to end. Only God is in control. Only God is sovereign. Only God is all-knowing. You can be both righteous and barren. Well, here's the third paradox then. Namely, the one guy who should be able to hear this. The one guy who should be able to hear this. So we're told that Zechariah is righteous, but Elizabeth is barren. And so beginning in verse 8, we learn about what was the single greatest day, the single greatest honor in Zechariah's career, his vocational calling as a priest. See, what would happen is your order would come on duty in the temple. And then they would draw lots. And if you drew the third lot, if you drew, there was a white stone in among the stones. And if you reached in and you got the white stone, then you would be chosen to go into the sanctuary and to burn incense on the altar. And it symbolized that the fragrance of the, the incense and the things going up 
symbolize the prayers of the people. And so while God's people are gathered outside praying, the priest is inside burning the incense before the Lord, before the Holy of Holies, in a way that symbolizes what God's, what God's people are doing. So symbolically, the priest is doing something the people are themselves actually doing. And you only got to do it one time in your entire priestly career. So here's Zechariah. He's blameless. He's righteous. And we're told he's old. So here is this venerable old man who's been waiting his entire vocational career to get to go do this. And today is the day. Finally, as an old man, he gets to go in and burn the incense in the altar in the sanctuary. And as he's burning the incense on the right side of the altar of incense, the angel of the Lord appears to him. And it isn't just that Gabriel appears, but he speaks. Look at verse 12 of Luke chapter 1. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Yeah, no joke. You haven't heard from God for 400 years. And now here you are on this single greatest day in your vocational life as a priest. And as you're there, burning incense, who shows up but Gabriel? And he says to Zechariah, verse 13, don't be afraid. The Lord has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. And then he goes on and he tells us about John's resume. That they will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. And the beginning in verse 15, he starts piling Old Testament promises one upon the other. Because he wants us to understand. He wants Zechariah to understand. And by extension, us. He wants us to understand exactly who this boy is going to be. First, he says he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, we've heard that before. When the wife of Manasseh, in other words, when Samson's mama was wrestling with her own infertility, the angel of the Lord came and said, hey, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be pretty awesome. But by the way, he's not going to drink strong drink. Uh, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and never cut his hair. We don't get that for John, but there's enough there that Zechariah would have gone, mm, this sounds like the angel's words to Manasseh's wife. This sounds like Samson's birth announcement. And then he goes on, beginning in verse 16, he starts quoting from the Old Testament book of Malachi both Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4. And that all of this is going to happen before this great day of the Lord, a day that will be a day both of blessing, but also of judgment. And what does Zechariah do? 
Look at verse 18. What's going on? How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. We're going to have a son. Hey, Gabriel, you're an angel. Maybe you don't quite understand how all this works. So let me break it down for you. I'm old. My wife is advanced in years. The math doesn't work. Verse 19, again, more Old Testament imagery. I am Gabriel. I stayed in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Now he's quoting. This sounds a lot like Daniel chapter 9. When the prophet Daniel went before the Lord and said, hey, uh, we're living in exile. You told us that after 70 years, you said this in Jeremiah that we were going to get to go home. Now here's the problem. We're still a hot mess but we're closing in on 70 years. So God, what are you fixing to do? What are you, how, how are you going to do this? And it's Gabriel who comes and who gives Daniel God's answer, God's response. So let's understand. Here's this blameless and righteous priest. Here's this man who knows the Old Testament frontwards and backwards. And here's an angel coming to him. And telling him things, by the way, that we've seen in the Old Testament time and time again. Do you remember what God said to Abraham and to Sarah? You're going to have a child. This time next year, Sarah will bear you a child. Sarah laughs. And Abraham says, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. Do you remember... How it is that God opened Rachel's womb after she cried out to the Lord because even though the sister, the sister uh, who was not loved but rather was had to be favored because she was producing sons to Jacob, that God opened her womb. Or how about San, uh, Hannah, Samuel's mom, when she cried out to the Lord because her rival was having children and she could not. Eli had the good sense to say, well, come back tomorrow and I'll tell you what the Lord says. We've already mentioned Samson's mom, and I would be, of course, remiss if I didn't mention the fact that Ruth had been married for 10 years before she marries Boaz and conceives a son. Here is the angel stacking Old Testament promise upon Old Testament promise upon Old Testament promise and what does Zechariah say? How will I know that these things will be? Now, again, I've said it's easy to pile on Zechariah. It's easy to look at the old man and go, huh, you know, there are all these Old Testament texts. and Man, the angel, like he was putting it on a tee, dude. All you had to do was hit it. But you didn't. Well, let me ask us a question this morning. Do we take God at his word? Or do we, like Zechariah, sit and say, how shall I know this? 
When God tells us that he offers us salvation through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, do we believe it or do we look other places for other saviors? When the Bible tells us without reservation that God judges sin, do we believe God at his word? Do we turn away from our sin? Or do we somehow try to rationalize our disobedience? Do we try to rationalize the way in which we fall short of God's standard? The one guy who should have been able to hear it didn't. But loved ones, as God's people, we have an entire book that tells us and reminds us that we can take God at his word. And if we will but cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. And that our God will return. And when he does, he's coming in judgment and in glory. So do we take him at his word? Or do we try to create a reality that's more to our own liking and more in keeping with our own preferences that's a little more palatable to the spirit of our age? In a few moments, we're going to come together to the Lord's table. And as we do, we need to be reminded of two beautiful things that the table communicates to us. It reminds us that our God is at work. That in the sending of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the offering of His Son as the sacrifice once and for all for sin, God has dealt with our sin. And so God continues the work that Christ completed on a hill called Calvary 2,000 years ago. We still feel the reverberations of the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the table also proclaims to us that Jesus is going to return. And as we read this morning in Sunday school, I love the way that Christopher Ashe put it, for some it will be a glorious day, for some not so much. For some it will be a day of great rejoicing, for others it will be a day of great fear and trepidation. But friends, the Lord Jesus is coming again. And the table reminds us of that. Do we take him at his word or do we not? Let's pray. Uh, Father, it is natural for us to wonder <laughs> just what the heck is going on. And it's normal, and in fact, in some ways it's easy to ask questions and to look for saviors and to seek to try to find solutions. Father, help us to understand that our hope is not in chariots. Our hope is not in rulers and principalities. Our hope is not in the wisdom of men. But as the psalmist reminds us, our hope is in the name of the Lord our God. So, Father, we bless you in this Advent, as we come into this Advent season, this season of waiting. We bless you that as certainly as your Son came in the first Advent, 
He will come again in the second. We pray all this now in his name. Amen.